Hello, everybody. Today, we are talking about experiments in upcycle fashion, industrial design, metalsmithing, and more with a special guest artist, Dorian Epp, and of course, our esteemed teaching artist, Kat Huang. ArtProf is a global community for learning visual arts. All of our content is 100% free. We have tutorials, critiques, and professional development. Now, sometimes, it's unclear what some of these fields are. And I know, Kat, sometimes people say to me, what's the difference between a comic and a graphic novel? And I'm asking you now because comics and graphic novels, nostalgia, which you're working on right now, that is your primary practice. So how would you describe what a graphic novel is in a nutshell? Graphic, a graphic novel is a comic, simple as that. I think it's mostly a hoity-toity title that editors and book reviewers give it so that don't have to say comics. They can just say, oh, I read a, a graphic novel. But truly, it is just, it's a comic in a book form. And actually, Dorian, you studied industrial design. And there are so many misconceptions about what industrial design is. So can you give us the most nutshell version of what industrial design is yeah i would have to say that the best way to put it it's thinking about a user and ways to satisfy users needs through various means of making uh i think the best way to also describe it is it's not just one thing uh, it encompasses user experience design it has a user interface so that means like making apps developing software there's fabrication there's metalsmithing uh there's a whole bunch of different aspects and things that play into what makes industrial design that there isn't really just one definition of it kat i'm curious before you went to art school had you heard of industrial design before because i hadn't i got to art school and i was like what no i had never heard of industrial design before and i only learned what it was when i entered art school and in fact Dorian told me an interesting story about what people think about when people say industrial design. For those who don't know what that is, maybe he wants to share the story. Uh, yeah, I think more often than not, people hear industrial and they start thinking buildings. So every time that I'm asked if I'm an industrial designer, they say, so that means you're an architect then, right? But very separate majors, very separate thought processes and making, it's more engineering based in architecture. Uh, versus industrial design, I feel like there's a lot more free thinking and uh, yeah, <laughs> no shots at architecture students though. No, we love you guys. I have heard industrial design described as everything that's in a house that is not alive. Does that work for you, Dorian, or is that weird and not right? Oh, I think that is the perfect way to describe it because the way that your furniture is designed. Uh, the can that you might might be drinking out of, the water bottle you might have, the sink that everything's coming out of. There's various things in the house, everything in your house. There was a designer who thought about how you're going to interact with that in your space. Even a bookshelf, it's operational uses to store books in an organized format, but it's supposed to fit in the space. So, uh, yeah, the small things like that that can also help with thinking about industrial design. So Kat, I think in some ways, industrial design is something that everybody interacts and uses, but 
never thinks about deliberately. Exactly. Sometimes when people say, oh, I have no experience with art or design, I'm like, do you not live in a world? <laughs> Industrial design is literally everywhere. Every single thing you interact with has an element of industrial design. Dorian, tell us what we're looking at here because we have some sketches and this eventually transformed into, tell me because I don't know. Uh, yeah, so this was actually a part of my sophomore year at RISD, uh, we had to do a project where we wanted to explore something we were interested in. Uh, my main interest is in sportswear, uh, sports injury prevention, and thinking of ways to help the next generation of athletes. And that includes footwear, that includes uh, compression wear, that's all the pre, post, mid-workout attire and things that go with it uh, that people kind of overlook and don't necessarily think about how it impacts your level of play. So I injured my knee in high school, so I wanted to focus for this project on developing a compression sleeve for the knee that prevented swelling for people that injured their knees already, uh, and also thinking about how it could actually aid in protecting the knee whenever the user is actually wearing it. So these are just some tests, some experiments, some cut-ups, quick sewing. Uh, this was actually some of the first times that I experimented with sewing and using a sewing machine. So that was actually pretty interesting to see how far things have developed and come from these small experiments as well. Tell us in the chat, now that you sort of know what industrial design is, is there a design out there that you really appreciate? Because my favorite piece of industrial design is the paperclip. I think it's such a simple thing and it works so well and you don't think oh my gosh somebody really spent time thinking about how to arrange this and to make it happen because Kat I look at the sketch that you did Dorian and then I look at you wearing it and I'm like I, I don't even know how that happens what, what's your take Kat looking at okay here's the design here's the final object at one hand, it blows my mind that so much planning has to go behind every single thing. But on another hand, I honestly feel kind of heartened in knowing that everything I touch has been thought through by another human, has been touched by another human before me. I feel like it's a very humane experience. And actually, Dorian, you're wearing your designs right now. And we're going to get into that later because you've also moved into so many other areas, which we're going to get into in a little bit. Yeah. Now, Kat, your primary focus is graphic novels. And so what the heck are you doing with photo lithography here? I honestly don't know. <laughs> I honestly took this class because when I was in art school, I was required to take classes outside of my major, which means classes not involving or under the category of illustration, which was my major. And so I ended up taking photolithography and this class really taught me how to appreciate craft because most of photolithography is that you have to grind a stone. <laughs> 
you literally just have to grind and grind and grind a stone until it's completely flat. And then you're prepped to draw and then eventually print from the stone. But I would say 90% of that time is spent grinding a stone. And so there is a lot of merit in soft skills and thinking, but there's also a lot of merit in hard skills and actually touching the materials and working with them. And people often forget that these hard skills are just as important as the soft skills. Now, Dorian, a lot of people might say, well, Kat, don't you want to get better at being a comics artist? Why are you wasting your time with photo lithography? Because Kat, have you made a photo litho since you took this class? I have not, I don't have access to grind a stone anymore. <laughs> so Dorian, is this a waste of time for Kat to have this experience outside mm. of her primary practice? Not at all, not at all. Uh, one of the things that I feel, well, let, me, let me get closer. I feel like our head's shaped on like different heights. Okay, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I think one of the things that I've learned through my experience of making is you have to play in order to actually learn and you have to fail at other processes to know how you can apply that one success or all of those failures into what you might be making. Uh, the projects I've been making for the past couple of weeks were all the results of basically me seeing that I messed up on a previous project or that I enjoyed how certain pieces of this project were layered or how that painting looked and thinking about how that can be applicable to pattern making or how the shoe sole can be formed, just everything in, I guess, yeah, I'm an industrial designer. So I look at everything and I try and think of a way to apply something from another thing, if that makes sense. We've got a comment from Anna who says, I wish there was more industrial design that focus on accessibility needs for people with disabilities. I don't know if you have experience with that, Dorian, but um, how do industrial designers go about identifying needs? Because there's so many people in the world and sometimes people with disabilities may not have the voice within that field. Uh, yeah, so great question, great question. Also one second. Sorry. <laughs> uh, being somebody who is in industrial design, the first thing that you have to recognize is you're going in there with a mission and that's to help people or bring awareness to a certain issue that's actually happening, that's happened. You just want to take those experiences and lump them into making a better decision, better design, better whatever because we're supposed to be informed as designers. Uh, so a lot of the teachers that I've had, like Leslie Fontana, uh, she has a literal project where you have to interact with people that have had arthritis or have certain joint pains, certain things that they can't do. And that goes into kind of an in-depth research of ergonomics and how things are supposed to be formed to make it comfortable and not just one kind of user-based design, if that makes sense, too. <laughs> and Kat, I know for graphic novels, you have to be very conscious of age group. What is the age group for your graphic novel, Kat? The age group for my graphic novel is middle grade, which means 
around ages 10 to 14 years old, so middle school. But I think most people understand that children's books are not just for children. They are also for adults. In fact, some of the best children's stories have kind of a double read for adults who kind of have lived more of their lives, understand the content a little bit deeper. And so I would encourage that these stories be accessible to different people. I think another thing is when you write a story or when you design a product, you really have to have your audience in mind. And it's only going to be better if that audience is more specific. And so if you design something with somebody in mind, with an individual in mind, you will inevitably be designing for many, many people because so many people have similar experiences. Dorian, can you define for us what is upcycle fashion? Because I don't know. <laughs> so I would really like a definition here because I've heard about upcycle fashion, but I really don't know anything about the field. So it's basically taking a form of clothing or some sort of textile and giving it a new purpose. So it's usually finding it at thrift stores, getting it from trash, donations, and in the best way possible, you get something that lost its life in one form and give it a new life in another form. So that can be sewing things together, uh, turning an old bag into a shirt, like thinking of just ways to apply those old textiles and fabrics into a new way. So Dorian, we have a sketch here where I think you sketched the original item of clothing, but then what happened here? Uh, that's whenever I just started wanting to play around a little bit more. It felt like I could be a little bit more free in the design and not think about necessarily what's actually happening on the paper. It's just playing with the design for right now. But as I look through the design, then I can go back and think, okay, that area is really cool. How can I apply something right here? So if you look back on that, how I said, like the wind can go underneath a windbreaker, you know, thinking about that, uh, cool ways of making it more a breathable fabric. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and Dorian, isn't the bag behind you one of your upcycle pieces? Yes. Uh, can you pull it out? <laughs> so this is made from all of my mom and brother's old jeans. And they gave them to me before I came back to RISD for senior year. And I never had a real purpose for them to like, actually make something. So I wanted to like turn this into a cool textile. And yeah, I made this at my job at Revival Brewery, had people watching me make it and give me ideas as I was making it, which was really cool because they were part of that experimental process as well. And so Kat, I know sometimes people are worried, oh, well, Dorian, if you want to be an industrial designer, this upcycle fashion thing is a distraction and you got to focus and buckle down and really do this one thing. But I think Dorian, you are such a multifaceted artist that you really thrive on that energy. And Kat, do you see connections between the industrial design and the upcycle fashion? I certainly do because in the end, as a designer and an artist, what you are looking for is potential. 
potential in designing a certain item, potential to make an item for a certain individual, potential when you see these unused clothes and seeing another piece of art that could emerge from that. So ultimately, yes, I do think these are interdisciplinary because ultimately the larger goal is seeing potential and acting upon it. Dorian, this is a shoe you found, correct? No, that is actually the shoe as I was uh, spray painting uh, the sole part of it. Uh, I made this entire shoe out of six different shoes donated to me by Sneaker Junkies. And I, yeah, I cut up various parts of the other shoes and labeled them, like laced them together. Uh, I had an ice skate that was nearby. So I was like, huh, the way that the skate had that lace go all the way to the front, uh, it just gave me so many different areas to really play around with it. And my friend from Chicago also roller skates, so she kept looking. Shout out to Nala. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> looking at it, and she was just saying, like, oh, yeah, this kind of looks like a roller skate. That's kind of cool. So after I finished the shoe, literally turned that graphic into kind of what I wanted it to become, because uh, that's a nice, pretty version of what it actually looks like. But yeah. So I wonder, Dorian, are you scouting all day? for supplies because it seems like you can make it from anything stuff that people just say oh that's a worn down yucky sneaker i don't need that and yet you're seeing potential it's it's great being able to know that if there's something there that it has another way that it could be applied to something uh, a lot of the teachers at RISD that i experienced at least in my senior uh, junior years in industrial design like Jess Brown, Keeper Nichols, all of them really pushed me and all the classmates to really think about how we can be more playful in our thinking. And not only that, but how we can be more firm in what our design is as a result of those experiments. And as we play with that, we start to get a better idea of how we want to move forward with our ideas and our iteration process. Well, we've got some good reactions here. Shoe of six different shoes, dope, sick, awesome. I don't know the slang, but I'm gonna assume that's positive. <laughs> I'm that old. Um, well, Kat, I think the photo litho, a lot of people could say, oh, well, that's two-dimensional. It's just printmaking. That is metal smithing. Some people might say, okay, this is the other side of the spectrum. What got you to take a metal smithing class? Quite honestly, what got me to take it is I like jewelry and I want to make my own stuff. <laughs> but another part of it was I felt really rewarded by making something so small, exquisite and precious. And so if we're going to give the definition of metalsmithing, I think you just take metal and you manip manipulate it in some way or form. I actually have a friend who studied jewelry and metalsmithing, and she told me, Kat, metalsmithing is just rubbing two objects together in some way or form. Like you're sawing <laughs> or you're sanding, or basically that's it. <laughs> and being a printmaker, I'm embarrassed to tell you that silk screening is the one printmaking technique I never 
thoroughly learned. So I'm a little bit mortified at myself. But Dorian, you were not a printmaking major. So where did you pick up these skills? Because that's the other thing that's a challenge is if you want to experiment and try different things, oftentimes you have to scrap together a quick education to be able to make something. So how did you get into silk screening? The one thing that my mom always says is a closed mouth never gets fed. Uh, so I have no issue admitting when I don't know something. And more than that, I'm not afraid to ask somebody who does know the answer, can you help me find a way to the answer? Because I don't necessarily need the actual answer, but if you put me on the right path towards finding it, then all the better. So this actually was the first ever design that robot design for my thesis project. And I wanted to have a really cool takeaway for people who came to support and I made, I think it was like 20 sweatshirts, 20 t-shirts, and it was all with just that logo. But so many people were receptive to it. They loved it. People still ask me about it. So I'm like doing another version of it right now, but it's really just really awesome uh, that I was able to take some drawing that I did whenever I was cooped up with COVID, put it on a shirt, burn it into a screen and, oh yeah, let me also say a little bit about the lingo. Uh, when you're burning a screen, that's actually the process of using an emulsion and it hardens. So when you apply a negative sheet, if you know photography or a little bit of that terminology, uh, you apply a negative to the actual screen and you use UV light or some sort of light source that hardens the emulsion. And after that, you rinse it away and you walk away with a fully complete screen that you can use I use plastisol because that's a more durable uh, ink like that's a plastisol ink that won't wash away and it burns at a higher temperature so small things like that but yeah <laughs> and Kat I do think a big part of your growth as an artist first of all it's ongoing I mean sure you could stop learning I think that's really boring <laughs> but I do think that being willing to admit that hey I know nothing about this. You do, please help me. I mean, maybe that's not the most polite way to ask, but <laughs> Kat, sometimes I think people do have an ego about that, especially when they're not in school. Why do you think that is? I think it boils down to insecurity almost because people who have an ego and basically wanna defend what they know or what they think they know, are just insecure at the fact that they sometimes don't know stuff or maybe have experienced something where they were really put down for not knowing something. And that's only going to harm you in the long run. If you admit that you don't know, you admit the truth. And you also admit that you are open to new experiences. And if you don't do that, you become incredibly close-minded and close yourself off to so many opportunities. Well, one of the arguments I've heard about not doing all these different things, I think we've all heard that phrase, quote, master of none. And I really don't think it's one is better than the other. Like I have a colleague in Boston, she is the litho queen. Everything about litho, she knows down to the tiniest detail. My knowledge of litho is 0.01% compared to her. 
And yet, Dorian, it seems like you love being all these different things, even if it means, okay, you're not going to be the Litho Queen. I feel having as many options to play as possible is the way that I approach my design. Uh, I love basketball. I love creating. I love making. So all of those things are creative in their own individual ways. And so I guess going down those paths and being at RISD, uh, learning the different ways that, uh, I'm trying to think how to phrase it, learning the ways that in my life, there are places that I am great and it's okay to not be the best, but it doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it just because you can't be the best. And you can always strive to be the best and you should strive to be the best, but there are places in my life that I have fun and I excel and I am comfortable with that, but I'm not gonna let that stop me from playing and experimenting. Megan says, Dorian is the king of growth mindset. I love that. And Ginger says, I am team master of none. I just like doing lots of different things. Me too. I think it's really, really fun. Now, Kat, you had to take 3D design in art school, and I don't think you went to art school to be a sculptor. Do you think these sculpture projects you did were helpful to your current practice, even though you don't do sculpture right now? I absolutely do think they are beneficial to my 2D artwork as well, because once working with 3D stuff, I became a lot more aware of movement and space and occupying that space. And also it gave me a clearer vision of light and shadow, which these are all fundamentals that are applicable to 2D art as well. It's just in 3D art, I was more aware of them. And then I became more aware of them, my 2D art. I like this comment from Nayla who says, being able to flow through different things is cool because you can always come back to one of them if you really like it. That's so true. And oftentimes we have to just try it. And sometimes people just don't even wanna do that. It's like, it's not a big deal. I mean, Dorian, I'm gonna guess you've made pieces that were total fails and it's fine, you move on, right? Yeah. and. It's actually funny because Nala is the one that I was referencing, who's from Chicago, gave a shout out to her earlier. But yeah, she has a very good point in that. <laughs> I really like what Ginger is saying here. I love taking classes that aren't, quote, my thing. No pressure to mm. do well. That's absolutely true. Because, Kat, I'm sure there's pressure when you're like, okay, the graphic novel, this is my thing. You feel like, there's so much pressure to not have it be a wreck. But if I say to you, Kat, oh, hey, come grind a stone with me. It's not a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I will grind a stone with no other thought in my head. <laughs> but actually, Clara, what's been really interesting about the premium tracks here at Art Prof is that we've gotten the opportunity to work with people who have not been traditionally trained as artists making art. And it's kind of incredible, everything that they come up with, because I feel even in an art institution, you're trained to fit into a certain mold. And so some artists might think this is the only way to make art, when that's really not true. And so a lot of these creative, inventive possibilities we see 
I've come from people who don't have an arts background. And so creativity can come from everywhere. And it's just a case of being open to possibility. Now, the word installation, I think is very confusing. And you see it all over the place in fine art and on websites and stuff like that. And Dorian, you have, I don't even know, I feel like this is more than an installation. Tell us what we're looking at. Uh, yeah, so this is actually the thesis slash collaborative study project I did under Jess Brown and with uh, Beyonce Armstrong, uh, who goes by Bubba, really talented painter. Uh, but yeah, we created a store, it's called The Corner Store, and we really wanted to talk about the influences of society on Black culture and the inverse of that. So one of the main hubs of Black communities is usually the corner store, uh, but I feel like that's also applicable for a lot of BIPOC communities. It's a store or some sort of, uh, I guess, place that everyone ends up needing something from at some point, but it really develops a source of community. And inside of it, we ended up showcasing some of our friends' work, uh, some of our work. And yeah, it was supposed to be a place that we could actually sell. So that's originally where I was going to have the shirt display and some of the shoe displays. Uh, Beyonce was going to have her puppets and her dolls and different figures that she worked on. But the fire marshals were called by somebody who didn't understand it and thought we were storing chickens inside of it. Yes. So I don't know how it correlates as we were building that, even though that is all constructed out of pilots, by the way. Uh, we just kind of found ways to adapt and manipulate that space into a way that still fit what our mission was as designers and creatives. Thank you so much, RB Dick, for the super six. We so much appreciate your support. Keep those super stickers coming. They do have an impact on us. And what's going on with this giant mushroom, Dorian? So I work at a place called Rhyme Designs. Uh, they're an event decor wedding company. And one of the coolest things that they did was give me the opportunity and one of my coworkers as well to create these ginormous mushroom sculptures that were part of an award show there. Uh, so Dell hosted this cool award show and it was Alice in Wonderland themed. And they're like, hey, can we get some trippy mushrooms? And like, they just had to be really tall, like really big. So. Uh, my mushroom ended up being this one, ended up being around eight feet and four inches tall. Uh, the width of it is like five feet. And yeah, it was one of the coolest projects made out of styrofoam, plaster, and spray paint. So pretty, pretty fun. <laughs> Good question from Lisa. Kat, maybe you can dig into this a little bit. There's no correct answer, but Kat, for you, what is maybe a difference between installation and sculpture? Well, I will say that I think installation feels temporary. So there's probably an animation or a projection happening. Maybe there's a performance element. But my understanding is an installation will be taken down. It's set up with the intention to be taken down pretty soon. A sculpture can also include installation. But in my head, sculpture is a little more broad and that things can be set up to be permanent. Really good explanation from Anna about installation. So some of you can take a look at that. 
in the chat. And we've got some other pieces here. So Dorian, oh, here's the shot of the interior. And I know for you, a big part of this was the engagement with the community, with the audience. And that's something I think a lot of artists don't think about enough. A lot of people, I'll talk to them about social media and I'll say, well, do you know who your audience is? And they'll say, gosh, I had no idea. I, I don't even know who my audience is. And so I think it's brilliant the way you were so specific about who you're engaging with and the awareness you're trying to bring about. Yeah. Uh, my mission as a designer uh, and my mission in life is always to help somebody as much as possible. I'm a giving person and I love to think of ways to give back to those, especially those who have helped me develop along the way. Providence mm -hmm. is a beautiful, beautiful place. Uh, that's where I am right now uh, and has given a lot to artists, creatives and businesses that not a lot of communities have an opportunity to see. So being able to have gone to RISD, get a job and actually start to immerse myself in the community has given me a different way of viewing Providence as a city, but also as a place that's a hub. Uh, it's a really great place to build and create and gather people, uh, showcase works, go to galleries, see RISD students, uh, get Jaywoo cooking. Like it's just such an amazing place. And if I can give back to the community through my work, through my creations, then all the better. So that's why I like making and I love seeing people on the streets with my shirts on. Uh, people walk up to me and ask me about the bags that I'm making. So stuff like that is just really amazing and touching for me as a designer. Kat, what is an animatic? Because I had no idea these even existed until you told me that you had made one. So an animatic is a set of storyboards that are set together. So you are to view it as if it was an animation, but frame by frame as storyboards are written out. And an animatic is truly a draft before a film or before an animation. And why did you do this animatic? I took a storyboarding class, that's why. And the animatic was the final for the class. But this specific animatic, I illustrated a story I'd always had, which is these three really awkward teenage girls are freaking out about prom. <laughs> and so they do all of their best efforts to get ready for prom in their own awkward teenage way. But the finale is sort of, it's not about prom, but it's about the friends you made along the way. <laughs> Overall, I really enjoyed making this animatic. I, I got some good laughs out of it. The link to this animatic is in the YouTube video description below. There's some really good voice acting from Kat that all of you can take a look at later on. But of course, Kat, you put a Cindy Lauper song on it. And so now I can't play it without getting demonetized. So anyway, everybody can go into the YouTube video description and take a look at this later. And again, you know, you're not producing storyboards and animatics all the time, but Dorian, this is absolutely related to the graphic novel, right? Yes, 1000%. Like it reads as a story. So I'm, I'm loving the work. It's like, 
(laughs) (laughs) And like people have been saying, once you've done it one time, going and doing it again is much, much easier. Because I really think that's the hardest thing is saying, oh, I want to try this. And a lot of us have impulses that, oh, we want to try something, but actually getting up and getting the supplies and figuring it out, like Cat, if I asked you to do another animatic today, that probably wouldn't be so difficult, right? Yeah, because I got through the process once before. The second time I do it, it will be faster. Now, Dorian, one thing that I really enjoy about the way you approach shoe design is that you do use for lack of a better word, scrappy supplies. And I think for a lot of people, when they think about shoe design, they think about, ooh, slick, Nike, oh, shiny and polished. And I'm wondering how you came about this approach to sneaker design, despite what people typically expect for a field like that. Yeah, uh, in the abyss as this messy apartment, I think one of the coolest things was being able to see the purpose in the material as I was choosing materials from the recycling. Uh, Because a lot of the stuff that's here is stuff that I either got from a thrift store or literally pulled out of my recycling slash trash and applied it because the protective covering on a fruit wrapper, like, Let's go with this for a second. Uh, I use that on the shoe that is the thumbnail, if you guys check that out. Uh, but the whole purpose of that was to use as a protective measure, thinking about how the Dell's cups and stuff, like those cups are really rigid, thinking about how that can be the support of the back of the shoe, uh, the Arizona tea cans and stuff at the bottom, thinking about the circular parts being the functional, like this is the grip of the shoe if it had rubber on it. Uh, there's not necessarily one way that I really approach that design process, so to speak, but it's just as I go along with that, I think of, okay, how can this be used in a cool way and where does it actually serve a purpose? Because the biggest thing is, how can I make this thing serve a new purpose? If there's no purpose in it, then I feel like the design is already going to be flawed. And Kat, I find it really refreshing because I do find sometimes in certain fields, there's quite a bit of gatekeeping about the way a field is supposed to be. And I certainly encountered that in education because me being on YouTube, oh my God, you're such a lover. Life form, Clara, you're on YouTube. You must be trash. I'm like, dude, it's just another way to educate. And yet people in academia crapped on me left and right because it wasn't the typical format of education. So Kat, I'm wondering if you've seen that in other art fields, that gatekeeping that happens when you don't fit that specific mold. Oh, I have absolutely seen that. I just think it's ridiculous. I think that I saw sort of catty behavior between different artists of different majors. And I thought, we're all artists. If you leave this institution, you know how the world is going to see you as. They'll label you as an artist no matter what you majored in, no matter what kind of media you do, no matter what kind of format you present on. You're just an artist. That's a very umbrella term. 
And so why are you being so gatekeepy about how things are supposed to be or how things are supposed to be run? Because we're already going to be pitted against whatever the world thinks of us. Because already the world doesn't have the greatest views of artists, like how are you gonna make a living, et cetera. And it's just tiring at that point. So why make yourself as closed-minded as the people judging you? Just keep an eye out for potential. And again, with teaching, YouTube is a fantastic platform for teaching. And I think, Clara, that you saw the potential very early on because you know what? You are not close-minded. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dorian, have you experienced any gatekeeping, industrial design, or upcycle fashion, anything? Yeah, I think traditionally in any field that there's some form of creativity, there's somebody that's trying to keep a traditional sense of it, and there's somebody that's trying to challenge the conventional norm of it. Uh, for places like Converse, literally them striving away from their entire like historical design to have these really cool, like clunky soles, different uppers, like the way that they're playing with their design, uh, there had to be someone who shook it up. So I feel like as someone in industrial design, it's like you see a lot of women trying to get more involved in it because it's a very male-dominated field. Uh, so shout out to the women that are actually doing that. Uh, you see a lot of people that are, I guess I would say, not closed-minded, but like when they're, they're in industrial design, they see that they have one thing that they want to fix and they stick with that. So I feel like being more open to the ways that you can design and the things that you can create with an industrial design degree, uh, it's a little bit less gatekeeping than some majors or some fields, but there still is an amount of it that I, people are going to challenge. You can all follow Dorian on Instagram. He has three accounts. He's got this one here. We also have Blacktop right, right. Market. Can you tell us what Blacktop Market is, Dorian? Uh, say it one more time. What is Blacktop Market, your shop? Uh, so yeah, Blacktop Market stemmed from, again, my thesis project and me developing ideas surrounding basketball and the intersections of, as it says in the bio, sport, identity, and culture. Uh, as a black man who plays basketball, uh, being tall, I'm automatically always asked, do I play basketball? And it's annoying, but like, yes, even though I do, it's like, you, you shouldn't have to ask me that. So there's things like that where I wanna find ways that I can celebrate the people that are uh, part of that culture that uh, have been influenced by it uh, and kind of celebrates them. But yeah, it's a way of celebrating the people that have influenced me, uh, also giving back to basketball and the basketball community. And if you guys would like to support, I have a shop, blacktopmarket.shop is the website. Just updated it, I'm adding things at the end of the year. So I will be doing pre-sales and sending orders out in March. So if you guys are interested, check it out. And here is the website that Dorian was just mentioning. And we also have your art account as well. So look at his work. We probably showed 0.0001% of the work that you have. So there's plenty to dig into. 
Remember, this Google slideshow is available. The link is in the YouTube video description below. You can also access all of our slideshows on artprof.org. Please join Kat and I. We will be in the Artprof Discord in the post live streams channel for chatting. No stage session. We're just chatting and typing. It'll be really fun because there's probably a lot of questions that people didn't get answered. There are many ways you can support Artprof. You can sponsor a video. And you know, we're so excited because on Tuesday, we have a special live stream. We are gonna make styrofoam cup sculptures. Mia and I are gonna do it. And you know what, everybody? This video, it was sponsored by Pickle the Pug. So thank you, Pickle the Pug, for sponsoring this live stream. And this is a way for us to create content that's for you, that's on our wish list. It's way better than me begging stuff from sponsors and wasting my time with that. I'd much rather create content for all of you. You can make a one-time donation via Venmo. You can purchase an artist call and get customized feedback on your practice as an artist. We have artist doc editing services as well for help with college applications, artist statements, and a huge thank you to our top Patreon supporters. You are carrying the load. But I'm crying a little this week, everybody, because we lost a whole column of names. And I'm just really sad. So please think about supporting us. You get perks, you get newsletters, exclusive content, access to channels in the Discord. We would love to see you all there. Our process podcast is available on Spotify and also on iTunes. And subscribe to our channel for more tutorials, critiques, and business tips. Everybody, thank you so much for watching. We'll see you next time. Bye.